Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Karen Thompson-Walker, a debut novelist whose book, The Age of Miracles, has become the big literary event of the summer, a book that spurred a bidding war between publishing houses here and in England that prior to it being released had already been optioned for a film and had over 20 countries eagerly lined up to translate it. Prior to writing her first book, Karen Thompson-Walker studied creative writing at UCLA, worked as a newspaper reporter in San Diego, and attended the Columbia University MFA program in New York City. A former book editor at Simon & Schuster, she wrote The Age of Miracles in the Mornings Before Work and Sometimes While Riding the Subway. Welcome to Between the Covers, Karen Thompson-Walker. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, in The Age of Miracles, there are, there are two crucial threads that get intertwined, and, and the first has to do with something that we all take for granted actually starting to change. The rotation of the Earth starts to slow and starts to progressively slow more and more as the book progresses. Tell, tell us what the slowing is that sets the stage for The Age of Miracles. Yeah, so so uh, on a certain morning, you know, that is otherwise seems seems ordinary. Uh, the young girl at the center of the story and her family, along with the rest of the world, uh, get this really alarming news, which is, uh, like you said, the rotation of the Earth has suddenly started to slow down, which means that the twenty four hour day. Uh, has started to grow. So it's almost 25 hours after the first day, and then uh, 26 hours, 27 hours, and it just gets wor uh, longer and longer. And um, there's a variety of kind of strange uh, natural consequences, um, as you can imagine, you know, on plants and animals and um, the and, earth itself. And you have this interesting um, uh, unraveling in a sense of the ecology where, for instance, the birds start dropping out of the sky, and we don't know why, but the consequences of mass bird die-off causes a, an overpopulation of insects, for instance. That's right, right. I, it, was, it was fascinating as I, as I did research and just as I wrote this story to imagine and, and remember how kind of fragile and interconnected um, all the different pieces of, of the planet are, you know, all the way up to us, you know, but also, you know, the birds, the um, plants, insects, and humans. So tell us the origin of coming up with this idea as as the um, scaffolding for the Age of Miracles. Uh, I came up with the idea after reading a newspaper article back in 2004. I read that the, the earthquake that caused the tsunami in Indonesia, uh, that earthquake was so powerful that it, it really did affect the rotation of the Earth. So after that, our 24-hour days were shortened by a few microseconds. And I just thought that was really haunting when I learned that, you know, something that, that I'd always thought of as stable and steady, the predictable rising and setting of the sun, you know, the 24-hour day, the idea that those things were actually in flux was very striking to me and a little scary. And I started to wonder right away, you know, what would happen if a much larger shift ever took place? So that was the seed. And how much did you uh, rely on or want to get the science right versus just going with your imagination and, and weaving a, a really good tale around this? Well, I wanted it to feel real. So as you as you read the book, I really wanted uh, the science to feel as real as the characters, and I wanted it to feel convincing. So for that reason, I did research as I as I wrote the book. Um, but certainly some of it is about uh, there's a lot of mysterious consequences that I just imagined, and that that felt... Maybe that's a different kind of realism to be able to to inject into this story things that that people and scientists are not able to figure out because it's everything is changing so quickly. Like you mentioned, the birds and eventually whales begin to beach themselves, and scientists can't quite um, figure out the causes uh, as quickly as the as new consequences start unfolding. 
What's really interesting about the Age of Miracles is we're talking about all these big global events. I think someone described your book as a, a big book of small moments. And, and I think that was a really good description of my experience of reading it because really the heart of the book and the most immediate things of the book are, have to do with our protagonist, who's an 11-year-old girl named Julia. Uh, maybe you can tell us about Julia and, and how she leads us into the story a little bit. Right. So, so uh, Julie is the narrator. She's she's actually she's an adult at the time that she's narrating this story, but the story is really um, focused in close detail on her memories of of being 11 years old, which was the year that the news of the slowing first broke and uh, the initial consequences started to unfold. So Julia is you know 11 years old. She's an only child. She is kind of a natural observer. You know, s- sensitive but a little stoic and. Um, a little shyer than the other kids around her. And she's going through all the kind of more, at the same time that these major global shifts are happening, she is contending in addition to those things, she's still contending with some of the, the more ordinary disasters of adolescence, you know, um, realizing that her parents are have flaws, that, that friendships can, can not only form at lightning speed, but also fall apart just as quickly. Uh, and she's also sort of falling in love for the first time. So all of that's happening at the same time as the, as the slowing. It really feels like you, I couldn't imagine this book being told by an adult narrator. And the way you've you've juxtaposed um, her world falling apart. I mean, everybody goes through the experience when when people are changing at different rates at puberty, and someone who's your friend one year is not your friend the next year. But why that happened is such a mysterious thing, and it really feels like, even though we have this background catastrophe potentially, that it really is about Julia navigating the way that her world is is unraveling and not so much the world of the slowing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, w- I hoped that it would be about both, um, sort of both uh, journeys, but it's definitely, um, it, I wanted it to feel, you know, like one person's real experience of this time. And once I knew that that person that I was going to be focusing on was 11 years old, I knew that um, part of her experience would definitely be um, interest and fear about what's going on in the larger world, but just as important to her, um, because that's the way I think, that's the way I remember being 11, are all those small moments that you mentioned, you know, the things that happen at school. And then, of course, all of it heightened and maybe made extra dramatic or or stressful for her because of what's going on in the larger world. You know, parents uh, and adults are, are, are panicking and acting in ways that they didn't necessarily act before. So her world is in, in small and large ways, changing. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned the panic, and, and maybe I'll clarify my last statement. I, I, I wonder if the reason why it feels like what's foregrounded is uh, her concerns about love and friendship versus the slowing at large is because the slowing is um, a slow catastrophe. It's not like 9-11 or an earthquake. Um, and so people in the book, The Age of Miracles, really seem to be focused on how can we keep our lives as normal as possible as we know in the back of our minds that everything is falling apart. Does that, does that seem right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I, you know, one of the reasons I was excited about this, this premise was that I liked the idea of, of writing about a disaster that unfolded. Uh, at a rate more gradual than others, so that it w- it does allow for um, a certain amount of daily life to continue or or to adapt, and and that those daily rituals become really I think emotionally important to to the people in the book. Um, 
so even more more important than than they were before because uh, they know that there's this sort of pent looming chaos that, that maybe may lie ahead. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Karen Thompson Walker. This is uh, between the covers, and we're discussing her debut novel, The Age of Miracles. There, there's also a, a an interesting parallel, I think, between the slowing of and the expansion of the day and the way the difference between adults and children's perception of time. And you think about how long summers were when we were children and how fast time goes now and how much there is really a, a change as we age. And certainly different things are, are uh, evolving at different speeds during puberty uh, particularly, which I love that juxtaposition because we don't know what's going to happen next when the day becomes 40 what becomes 20 hours of sunlight and 20 hours of darkness. How are people going to cope? And and similarly, Julia doesn't really know how in the world she's going to find new friends or, or there's actually a central love story to the, to the book as well. That's right. Um, after, you know, Julia, her, her initial experience of um, the days and weeks following the slowing is, is a kind of loneliness as uh, especially her, her closest friend that her is um, a Mormon family who decides that they, if, if this really might be the end of the world, they decide they want to go to Utah to be the, re- with, to be with the rest of their family, which leaves Julia in, in just, just in this small way, kind of alone at school. Um, but there's this, this boy, Seth, who she, um, has been interested in for a while and, and kind of gradually gets to know and becomes he, he becomes increasingly important because she has felt kind of isolated um, as a re- in, the, in the days and weeks after the slowing. So a question a lot of our listeners who haven't read the book yet may have is, what is up with the title, The Age of Miracles? We're talking about the earth slowing down and, and species dying and a lonely girl going through puberty. Tell us what the title means. Uh, you know, I liked the title. I, I came up with it early, you know, when I maybe had uh, 40 or 50 pages of the novel. And I liked the idea that the word age could have two meanings. Um, you know, certainly in the book, this is an, an age in the in the history of the planet when the rotation of the earth suddenly started to slow down. But it's also about the age uh, of 11 or, or the age of ado- adolescence, which um in the book, I, there's a, a line where I called it the age of miracles. Um, and that word miracle I was thinking of in, of course, a, a little looser sense than we normally think of, but as an event that breaks with the rules of reality as we understand them. And so the slowing certainly seemed to fit into that category. Um, and also uh, adolescence, you know, youth as a time when things are changing so quickly. You know, obviously people's people's bodies, but they're their personalities, uh, their friendships um, are changing at a rate that seems almost impossible or would have seemed impossible to Julia, you know, two years earlier. Um, and so that that felt a, that feels a little miraculous to me as well. Well, let's let's give our listeners a, a taste of the prose. I know you're reading at Powell's downtown tonight, and um, I'm sure this will hook some people in to come and <laughs> come and hear more. OK, so this is the opening of the book. <clears throat> We didn't notice right away. We couldn't feel it. We did not sense, at first, the extra time, bulging from the smooth edge of each day like a tumor blooming beneath skin. We were distracted back then by weather and war. We had no interest in the turning of the earth. Bombs continued to explode on the streets of distant countries. Hurricanes came and went. Summer ended. A new school year began. The clocks ticked as usual, 
Seconds beaded into minutes. Minutes grew into hours. And there was nothing to suggest that those hours, too, were not still pooling into days, each the same fixed length known to every human being. But there were those who would later claim to have recognized the disaster before the rest of us did. These were the night workers, the graveyard shifters, the stalkers of shelves and the loaders of ships, the drivers of big rig trucks, or else they were the bearers of different burdens, the sleepless and the troubled and the sick. These people were accustomed to waiting out the night. Through bloodshot eyes, a few did detect a certain persistence of darkness on the mornings leading up to the news, but each mistook it for the private misperception of a lonely, rattled mind. On the 6th of October, the experts went public. This, of course, is the day we all remember. There'd been a change, they said, a slowing, and that's what we called it from then on, the slowing. We have no way of knowing if this trend will continue, said a shy, bearded scientist at a hastily arranged press conference, now infamous. He cleared his throat and swallowed, cameras flashed in his eyes. Then came the moment, replayed so often afterward, that the particular cadences of that scientist's speech, the dips and the pauses, and that slight Midwestern slant, would be forever married to the news itself. He went on, but we suspect that it will continue. Our days had grown by 56 minutes in the night. At the beginning, people stood on street corners and shouted about the end of the world. Counselors came to talk to us at school. I remember watching Mr. Valencia next door fill up his garage with stacks of canned food and bottled water, as if preparing, it now seems to me, for a disaster much more minor. The grocery stores were soon empty. The shelves sucked clean like chicken bones. The freeways clogged immediately. People heard the news, and they wanted to move. Families piled into minivans and crossed state lines. They scurried in every direction, like small animals caught suddenly under a light. But of course... There was nowhere on earth to go. I'm curious when I hear that, whether you're drawn to books that are uh, both literary fiction and genre fiction or blurring the, the boundaries. Because when I listen to the prose, uh, you can really tell from the lyricism on the sentence level and the fact that the book is so uh, character-driven that it is a literary novel, yet you're dealing with you know end-of-the-world issues, even though I think that the emotional landscape of of Julia is really foregrounded in the Age of Miracles. Do you do you like those books that sort of blur the boundaries between the two that are taking elements of science fiction or fantasy and and mixing that with a literary sensibility? Yeah, I mean, I mean the the thing that draws me to a book most or the most essential thing uh, as a reader is 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 that the, the writing be you know, good writing and interesting writing and, and, and something that is going to, that, like, that's what, that's one of the things that holds my attention, the sort of the first thing. But I do, my favorite books are the ones that are not only well-written and interestingly written, but also tell a gripping story. So books like The Road by Cormac McCarthy or Blindness by Jose Saramago, those two come to mind um, that are, you know, pretty literary and very uh, wonderfully written, but they do have this they have a they have suspense, you know, in their own way, and and both deal a little bit with apocalypse. That's true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the one of the great things I loved about the plot of of the Age of Miracles was the idea of the clock timers and the real timers. So we have um, the day expanding, but 
basically, it seems totally reasonable to me that the government needs to find a way to cope. So they decide, okay, even though our day is now, say, 36 hours long, 18 days of sun, 18 hours of sunshine and 18 hours of darkness, we're going to stay on the 24-hour clock just so everyone can agree. The problem with that being that some people are going to school some days in the dark or sleeping when it's light. And so we have a whole other group of people which is has an equally... Uh, reasonable impulse in, in my mind, in a sense, it's like, no, we're going to continue with the movement of, of nature and we're going to sleep as long as it's daytime and we're going to, I mean, we're going to sleep as long as it's night and we're going to stay up as long as it's daytime. So tell us more about, about the clock timers and the real timers and, and what happens between them as the days get longer, because this is a very fascinating part of the book. <laughs> uh, yeah. I soon, I mean, as I started to tell this story, I could see that there would, that, that, Society would be in chaos, um, you know, especially because the, the the sunrise and sunset. Not only are the days longer, but the sunrise and the sunset happen at unpredictable times because they never know how how many minutes are going to be gained each time. So, for the purpose of just scheduling and um, work schedules and and, and public school, uh, like you said, the government sort of institutes the twenty four hour clock and says, "This is we're going to stay on this clock." Um, but yeah, the 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 these people who soon become known as real timers um, are looking for something more natural, more organic, which is to stay in sync with the rising and setting of the sun. Uh, and, and and they're the minority. They're kind of an, an idealistic minority, although they, they come from all different, you know, some do it for religious reasons, some uh, do it more because they, they want to stay in tune with nature, as you said. Um, but uh, pretty quickly, the, the problem is those people are completely those people, the real timers become completely out of sync with the rest of society because uh, their days d no longer line up with the days and nights of the clock timers. So uh, there is some some friction between them, just even in, in Julia's neighborhood. So um, and, and and in my mind, the reason that and so the, the people on Julia Street who go who live by real time. Uh, become kind of ostracized on the street and from the community. Uh, and in my mind, I felt that I, I felt that clock timers, people living on the clock, the 24-hour clock, uh, would it wouldn't just be that the 24-hour clock is more convenient. It's that it's there in this time of, of global chaos. They are holding on to as tightly as they can um, some kind of order and some kind of memory of of, of of the of how it was before, you know, the steady twenty four hour clock, and so they see the real timers as uh, kind of a threat. It sort of frightens them because if 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 we don't hold on to this twenty four hour clock, maybe um, chaos will just descend in society. So because of that, because of their fear, they are hostile toward um, the real timers. Well, of course, if you're making a someone's making a choice the opposite of you, you're concerned, and, and there are rumors going around, at least initially, that maybe the real timers are on to something around their own health benefits by uh, by trying to follow the, what's happening. That's right, right. And uh, I did do some research on, you know, human circadian rhythms, and, and I read that, that circadian rhythms are actually more malleable than, than we might think. So initially, the real timers... Um, you know, maybe they are sleeping better because they're sleeping in the dark um, and, and, and living these more natural lives. But uh, it, it becomes clear that they're not going to be able to participate in society if they live on, on real time. And so uh, many of them kind of cluster in these communities outside of the cities, you know, in deserts and wildernesses and start these sort of separate colonies that live on real time. Although it becomes increasingly hard for them to maintain that lifestyle as the days stretch longer and longer and longer. 
In case you tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking to debut novelist Karen Thompson-Walker about her book, The Age of Miracles. Let's talk briefly about um, some of the other health consequences. So there's this syndrome called the called gravity sickness. Right. What, what is gravity sickness, and, and what happens when you get it? Well, so after a few months after the start of the slowing, people... Um, you know, first the birds get sick, and 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 later there's whales. But at, at a certain point, people begin to um, experience strange symptoms, and there are a lot of different symptoms. Uh, but like dizziness, fatigue, fainting, um, and 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 doctors and scientists aren't able to pinpoint exactly what the cause, but it's is, but it's obviously related to the slowing. Uh, and so there's, you know, theories, what, maybe it has to do with disruption of circadian rhythms, maybe it has to do with a slight change uh, in gravity, gravity becomes ever so slightly stronger um, after the slowing. Uh, and, and Julia's mother is one of the one of the uh, first people to come down with this. And um, in Julia's mother's case, it kind of grows out of in, in what what is initially her own kind of paranoia about this. In you know, given this frightening situation, it sort of becomes a physical illness, and it you know, it's unclear to Julia uh, and her father, who is a doctor, uh, whether it's a real syndrome or if it's just a product of anxiety. But it is very scary for the people um, watching their loved ones go through this. You mentioned. Uh, you mentioned Cormac McCarthy and Jose Saramago as two two inspirations, and and Ray Bradbury is also mentioned in the book, which feels like a fitting resonance. Are there writers in in general that have um, influenced your work in a more general sense um, when you when you were working on on putting it together? Yeah, um, certainly those those three that you mentioned. Um, other writers that that I love who who write on, you know, different to- different topics would be uh, Jhumpa Lahiri. I think she's just an amazing storyteller. Um, and I really feel like from reading her short stories, I learned something about narrative that I w- didn't quite, hadn't quite figured out before. So she was, that was really important. Um, and earlier than that, like in college, Virginia Woolf was a really um, major influence, although less, less on my writing style, but just, um, it was, it was, just to, I remember reading her for the first time and feeling like, wow, you can do you can do this in fiction. You know, you can spend this much time on people's thoughts uh, and 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 on their ordinary moments. Well, that's that's an interesting segue to talk about Virginia Woolf and as, as since she was the author of A Room of One's Own and and I I think your story as a writer is um, potentially in, uh, inspiring to aspiring writers because <laughs> you only wrote for an hour a day. You didn't have a room of your own. You shared a, a quite a small apartment with your husband. Yes. I think it was 350 square feet. Yeah, studio and, apartment. And yeah. You only had one desk <laughs> right. and one chair. And um, So how did you pull off writing an hour a day without a room of your own um, and, and bringing this to the light of day? Yeah, it was hard. I mean, because I, I was working full time um, as a book editor. Uh, and so the only time that I had was the mornings. Um, you know, so I so I would wake up an hour earlier than I otherwise would have, and and just do a little work on my novel, and then and then go to work. And it was it felt slow. It felt sometimes excruciatingly slow the progress. But um, I mean, I know that that particular job was good for my writing. So I I feel because I, I was learning a lot at work about what makes for good storytelling. You know, as I helped other writers uh, polish their books. But the time was, it was a big challenge. And I don't know, I think maybe it, maybe I did develop some kind of habits of discipline that, that I hope now that I've left my full-time job, I, I try to 
hold on to, you know, and I, I find that in the morning is still, it's still the best time to write for me. Um, but yeah, but it's true. I, I, I'm glad even myself now that I don't have a full-time job, I kind of can't quite believe that I managed to write a whole book in that fashion, but I try to use it. I try to remind myself of that when at times when I get busy for other reasons that it really can be done. Well, you mentioned how being an editor really helped you in writing, which makes a lot of sense. Was it difficult for you to be edited having been an editor, or was it easier? Uh, you know, I mean, I know that I had a lot of respect for the, the process of, of being edited and for the, you know, author-editor relationship. Um, so I feel, and, and I had a great editor, and she was very thorough, and actually... Uh, one of my main responses was I was just amazed at how insightful and, and thorough she was as an editor. You know, as an, as an editor myself, I was sort of felt like it was amazing to, to be in the presence of such a genius editor. Um, so I think it was good. I mean, of course, it's always it's always a change compared to when you're just working on your own, having someone else bring their smart thoughts into your work. It was, it was an adjustment, but it was um, really fruitful, and I feel really... Uh, grateful to her. So, Well, you mentioned the two possible interpretations of the title, The Age of Miracles, being about the slowing, being also about Julia going through this huge change in her life at puberty. But also, I would say your story would be the third the <laughs> third interpretation with you coming out with a debut novel and, and, and having so many people interested in wanting, wanting to uh, further its success into the world. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's a little hard. It's all a little shocking and hard to believe, but in in the best possible way. <laughs> you you would think that um, maybe that's heartening about the publishing industry because we keep hearing about its demise, and here we are seeing um, them really putting their muscle behind something of value. Yeah, I mean, I feel really lucky. It's true. I mean, there's a lot of one of the hard things about working in book publishing was watching so many um, books that I think were really great or really well written, and for one reason or another, um, either didn't get published or they did and no one paid any attention. And so, so I, I know that was, it was just painful. I mean, I can think of so many examples. So I feel really lucky to, to have this outcome. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just always going to be aware of, of, of all the people who are having a harder road and hope that, that eventually <laughs> it works out. So can you tell our listeners what you're working on now? Um, yeah, I've started a new novel, which is feels really it's exciting to kind of settle into new, a new project. Um, I, I feel like a little superstitious about saying too much about it, but it is um, it's another it's another book about uh, people facing an extreme situation, although a different kind. Well, let me ask you this, and of course, you don't have to answer okay, if yeah. it's if it goes into the superstitious territory. <laughs> but um, do you think in a general sense, like I wrote this novel? And it's a, from a child narrator, or it's it's relatively short. I want to write a really big novel. I want to write an adult. Um, do you have any of that as a contrast against what you just did over the last um, several years? You know, I don't. I don't have a strong impulse to do to do a major contrast to this. I mean, I want to make sure I'm doing something new that I haven't done before. But for me, the whole writing process has been uh, an evolution, and so uh, I think my next book will be you know, jumping off of some of the things I was interested in in this book, but hopefully evolving into something new and as sort of a continuing process rather than trying to do something that's the opposite. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure having you on Between the Covers today, Karen. Oh, thank you so much. So we're talking today with Karen Thompson Walker, the author of the book, The Age of Miracles. If you'd like to hear more, she's reading tonight at Powell's downtown. And we'll also have this archived on the website, kboo.com. 
fm backslash between the covers uh, stay tuned for the rest of the thursday morning radio zine uh, an interview with the author of fuel on the fire oil and politics in occupied iraq this has been between the covers i'm david name your host <laughs>